welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I am joined by Chris Georgeson. He is the SVP of Global Sales at Blendtec. And full transparency, they are a pattern partner, but I am very excited. I haven't spent actually a ton of time with you, Chris. And so I'm excited to be able to sit down and learn a little bit more about you guys. I've been an admirer for a really long time of the brand, of your career. And the other cool thing is you're local. So we're doing this still virtually, but you are local to Utah. That's where Pattern is headquartered as well. And so let's get after it. Let's hear a little bit and Happy New Year to you. So tell us about Blendtec. For those that are not familiar with Blendtec, and tell us a little bit about what it means to be the SVP of Global Sales. That's a big remit. It is. And appreciate it, John. Happy New Year to you as well. Appreciate you having me on. Exciting opportunities. Exciting things happening at Blendtec right now. We do have a long history of... We're an appliance manufacturer primarily manufacturing blenders for households as well as on the commercial space. If you go into a lot of the smoothie or the coffee shops on a global level, you're going to see, chances are, it's going to be a blend tech that's sitting there. We are located in Orem, Utah, so just up the street from you. I'm not too far away. A lot of people don't know we manufacture. It's well over 90% of our product in our factory that I'm sitting in right now. You know, a lot of companies, appliance manufacturers similar to Blendtec, they're going to do the injection mold or final assembly. We have a PCB line where we actually make our own circuit boards that go into our machines. We wind our own motors or copper. We actually make our own motors that go into our machines. And really, we do all that just so we're not reliant on bad quality items coming from other manufacturers. We can control the quality there. We've got it's about 300 employees distribution in over 90 countries currently. Central warehousing in the US, Canada, in the EU. And Blendtec, I think what most people know us for is just the innovation, doing things a little bit different. It may come down to the marketing. It may come down to the innovation on our product. But we currently have, it's over 30 product patents on our products protecting our IP, really been the first to market and kind of the trend center along the way. And that's something we continue to push forward. I've been the senior vice president of sales of Blendtec. It's a little over two years, been with the company for around 12 years, quite some time. I do oversee all of our sales marketing, account management, and customer service departments. So a lot on my plate. At the end of the day, I've got an awesome team. I culture here at Blendtec is a team effort to get things done. It's not one individual. It's not a leader here or there. It's the entire group of group effort. For Blendtec to win, it's the entire team. And I'm very happy to be here at Blendtec. Love it. Well, there are so many different paths we can go down, and we're going to go down a bunch of them. But I think, you know, especially for you in your career slash tenure at Blendtec. And when I think of Blendtec, two things kind of pop into my head, right? Like, will it blend? And we'll get to that phenomenon that happened during your tenure. And then the other one is just product quality. Like, you know, in our world from Amazon, you go on amazing product reviews. And then I'm an owner, right? We've had our, whatever, wild side and blender for 10 years. And that thing just like takes a beating. I mean, we use it almost every single day. And honestly, I guess at some level, maybe we should go into that. Like, it's got to be kind of crazy because you probably don't have a ton of repeat purchases because those things just are like tanks and they just keep going. And I know you guys have really good customer service too, because the one time, I can't remember if I lost the lid or like something happened, they just like sent me a new one. So 
a really, really awesome company. And then the other thing that I kind of think about is like the intersection of where you guys kind of grew up and rode this really nice wave in the United States at the very least, and I would guess worldwide too, of this kind of on-the-go requirements and health crazes and a lot of these great tailwinds that you guys have had. So I'd love to get into a bunch of those, but you've kind of had a front row seat to all those different aspects of everything I just covered because you've been there for, like you said, 12 years. So tell us a little bit about, I don't know what the company looked like, probably not in 90 countries when you joined. So tell us what it looked like, where it started. I'm sure it's a great entrepreneurial tale. It is for sure. So I've been with the company since 2009. Blendtec has been manufacturing blenders since the early 90s, really when the smoothie craze took off in 1991. There were several smaller smoothie shops that really are household names at this point that we started business with at that time. You know, when I entered the company, it was we had a strong background in the commercial space. And really, that was due to the innovation that we had. We're the first to do a lot of things in the market that are kind of commonplace now. First, put a square jar on the top of a blender. It transfers the material more efficiently. It's pretty commonplace in the marketplace, in the commercial marketplace. We're the first to ever put a preset program on the front of a blender. Prior to that, coffee and smoothie shops, they'd have to pay someone to sit there and attend the blender manually think, hey, I think it's done. Let me shut it off. You know, it's not consistent from drink to drink. So we innovated a long time ago, put a preset program on the front of a blender where an operator can simply load the ingredients in a jar, throw it on the blender, push a button and walk away, help other customers. That's translated into a ton of success for home use. Most of us are doing four or five things in our kitchen at once. And the last thing we want when we're making our margaritas is to think about when is it done? Or, you know, you simply throw this stuff in, push about walk away, and it makes your margarita and shuts itself off as well as so many other things. You know, you asked about, you know, my history with Blendtec. When I did enter the company in 2009, I actually started at the bottom of the sales department. We had a strong focus of Costco or Sam's Club wholesale club sales at the time. And so I actually started at the bottom. 12 years ago, you would have found me sitting primarily in a Costco slinging blenders. (laughs) I love it. Selling blenders for 12 hours a day, doing it for 10 days at a time, four days off. And... It was awesome. If someone told me 20 years ago, hey, in 2009, you're going to be selling blenders. Love it. I would have told them they're crazy. But Blendtec is a cool company. People, our customers are so passionate. Been a good company to work with. And started there, started demonstrating. I did that for about three years inside Costco and Sam's Club. Kind of proved myself that I knew how to sell the products and I knew how to train other individuals on how to sell our products. And so I moved up into a management position at that time where I oversaw our Southwest demonstration services. So basically all of our Costco, Sam's Club demonstrators, I had about 30 demonstrators under me that would go into those club wholesale locations and, you know, do a 15 to 20 minute demonstration on the quality of our product. Did really well there. Grew the region, had some of the top sales, which allowed me to advance my career to the director of retail execution, which at that point I was over managing the Costco, the Sam's, some of our wholesale business. We had at the peak time, it was about 175 demonstrators throughout the US and about 40 internationally that would go out and supply demonstrations in the warehouses. Did that for several years and then ended up moving to a director role we're seeing our global retail sales, all of our home use products. At that time, we were only in the US selling in the domestic market. This was right around 2015. There was a big focus. You know, we had been selling for about 20 years at that time 
in about 90 countries for our commercial products, but we'd never approached selling retail products on the international front. And in 2015, we expanded internationally. You can find our products on the retail side of the business in over 35 countries, right? In about 37 countries globally, it makes up about 40% of our overall revenue. It's been a fantastic ride. So great. Well, I guess back to the innovation front, I mean, you spoke to a lot of innovation in the products and yeah, man, this is like takes me back how dumb blenders used to be. I guess I just kind of take it for granted now. So that's great. Tell us a little bit about the innovation in that club channel, right? I kind of think of maybe, I don't know, Vitamix is probably your biggest competitor or was, I guess, at some point or maybe still is, but that feels like pretty innovative, the whole, and I don't know how many people were already doing that. Like, it's hard for me to start thinking back of what the Costco experience was back even in the 90s or early 2000s. But was that a pretty innovative thing at the time to be staffing the Costco's like that? Were other manufacturers there kind of around the clock? It is such a, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier, but you are a premium in the market compared to, again, a bunch of Chinese knockoffs or whatever. And so, the ability to actually showcase real time what the product can do and that difference and that educational kind of curve feels pretty important. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Blendtec, we've had a long history of demonstration. We've always sold at the high end of our market anyways. And anytime you're selling at the high end of the market, you can talk about features all day long, but customers really need to see the benefits. There's no better way for them to understand what the benefits of the machine is than if you can get face-to-face with them and provide a 10 to 15-minute demonstration on features, benefits, and how it's going to affect their life. And Costco's had a, what they call a roadshow program for quite some time. We're not the first to ever go and launch into a roadshow program. We are one of the very first appliance companies to ever go and launch in that space, though. It was an easy fit for us, though. We're used to going out and demonstrating our products in other locations. One of the benefits of that club space is, you know, you go into a regular retail store, your door count sits around 40 or 50 per hour. You get into some of those crazy warehouses, you can be sitting at 350, 400 people per hour, and it just made sense. Blenders sold like crazy. We had a good demonstration and a good process to actually sell and educate the customers of the benefits of Blendtec. Yeah, I love that. Well, and you talked about like the passion that consumers have, the advocacy, and it kind of cracks me up. Like in a Costco, you'll see someone going up and sampling something. And then it's like this periphery of other people are coming up and enforcing if they truly are in a, like a passion. And I can imagine that probably happened to you guys a lot with Blendtec of someone coming up to someone else sampling and saying, hey, that's really good. Or you got to try this. Or if you, you know what I mean? It's pretty cool how that reinforcement at the point of purchase is so powerful when you have a brand like that. Absolutely. It happened on a daily basis and it continues to happen on a daily basis. You just follow us on social media and you see our people really, really passionate. If anyone ever tries to say it's rare, but it happens, someone may say something, hey, Blendtec, this or that. Our clients, our customers come to our rescue anyways. Very passionate about that, but that's something we've had to earn. We yeah. didn't get that just because we made a great blender. We made a great blender and we stood behind it. And you know, you say you have one issue. We want to make sure our customers are lifeblood of our business. If we're not taking care of our customers, we're not going to have future customers. And that's been ingrained in the culture of Blendtec for such a long time. And that's why we've got such a passionate customer base. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I mean, I knew it was a great product. I knew it was a great brand. I had no inkling that it would one issue in 10 years and it got completely resolved. Like it's just asinine, really. 
So you obviously have this amazing commercial business that's kind of thriving based on early pioneering, great product, great distribution internationally. You come on board at some point, you know, several years later, they decide the company that we're going to push into the retail space and obviously amazing product pipeline. How do you build a brand around the retail space? How do you get people bought into this performance or this quality? Let's talk a little bit about this Will It Blend because, you know, it was such early days. We didn't have so many of the social media platforms that we had. YouTube actually was still pretty nascent. And I'm trying to think in my head, like, it feels like one of the first truly kind of viral videos, this Will It Blend thing. Tell us, if you can, like, what was it like back then? And who came up with that idea? And it felt like it got crazy legs. Did you guys ever anticipate it would turn into this kind of cult phenomenon? Did you have consumers trying it at home? Like, I want to hear all the dirty details on this. Absolutely. It's kind of a fun story on this. You know, Blendtec, where we've had such a strong history of innovation, our owners at that time, you know, the philosophy was, hey, if we just build the best blender out there, we really don't need a market. We don't need to spend the dollars to market because people will, they'll seek after us. There's a little bit of truth to that. Marketing is really important in building a brand. And Will Blend showcase that. But what's funny about it is it was the very first day, as I'm told. So this is a little before my time. I started in 2009. Will yeah. Blend, I believe, took off or it was right around 2003, 2004. But it was the very first day that our VP of marketing started right at that time. His very first day on the job, he walks in, talks to our owner and says, hey, what's my marketing budget? I'm ready to execute. Let's, I've got some great ideas. Owner opened up his wallet and pulled out. It was like $30 in cash and said, here's your marketing budget. <laughs> <laughs> we had a pretty amazing marketing VP at that time. Went actually to the grocery store just right up the street, came back. It was about an hour later, had a can of Coke, a whole chicken, a few other things, and sat down with Tom, our owner at the time, and said, Listen, we're going to film you blending some crazy things. I know it sounds a little odd, but it's going to be great. We're going to put it on YouTube. And the response from our owner was, What's a YouTube? And so obviously that evolved very quickly. They filmed it. They posted it on YouTube. I believe it was the very next day they come in. We had something like 19, 20,000 views on it. That escalated to close to a million views within about a week, week and a half. And it ended up, you know, Blendtec, I believe, were one of two companies, two non-marketing companies to ever win a Clio Award, which is crazy. And it was due to the Will Blend campaign that you know, we've got well over hundreds of millions of views on our product that introduce a lot of people to our product. And the thing we used to always tell people is, yeah, you're probably not going to be blending marbles and baseball bats and hockey pucks at home. But if it can do that, you know, it's not going to have a problem with your ice and your frozen berries that are, they're killing your current blenders you've got in your house. Yeah, totally. Well, what a fun story. And at this band, it brings like this flood of memories. So what did that do for the brand? What did it do for adoption, for inquiries, and how maybe, if you can speak to it, how did that start to influence the e-commerce strategy? Because I think a lot around the e-commerce equation is traffic times conversion times price or basket size equals revenue. And suddenly, you have this crazy influx of traffic that is also obviously helping all the retail channels and club and everything like that. But how did the introduction of a retail portfolio plus this weird tailwind of viral video kind of influence and evolve on the e-commerce piece? Yeah, great question. Really, that Will of Blend was the catalyst to launch our retail products. Prior to Will of Blend, 
I'd probably say over 90% of our sales were on the commercial space. Wow. But Will of Blend really spoke to that retail customer. It really spoke to the audience of 16 to 24 males on that side, which fits somewhat into our market space there, but allowed us the exposure to actually go into a club, a Costco, a Sam's Club, and have a ton of success. Wow. It's great that we can go in and demonstrate, but if you've got some brand awareness associated with that, I can tell you in 2009, when I was selling blenders in a Costco, it was at least a dozen times a day, someone would walk by and say, oh my goodness, mom, that's the will of blend. That's the one that blends marbles. It allowed us to take off, which at that time, you know, prior to that, we really didn't do a lot on our own website or D2C marketplace. That changed overnight at that point where there was a big focus. We need to have a good retail lineup, force some innovation on the side to differentiate a little bit between the commercial space and our retail space, really have some feature sets that worked better for the home than potentially they did um, a little different space on one side than the other. You know, I think aesthetics appeal, look, feel is a little more important for the home use, practicality, touch and go is a little more important for the commercial space, but that's really the catalyst. It was that awareness on our brand that allowed us to innovate one. And really, it it probably wasn't for us e-commerce. We really didn't see the true potential of that till 2013, 2014, really where we got behind it. A lot of the marketplaces really taking off at that time and helping us grow our business. Prior to that, to be honest, it was really about demonstration, demonstrate in front of the customer. Great to demonstrate in a customer. It costs a lot more than to go and put your product on a website and sell it in an effective manner though. Yeah, for sure. So you get to this point where maybe you start to do a little bit more on the website or invest into the website, marketplaces come on the rise. Again, I don't know how much you were involved in some of those decisions, but I'm thinking, you know, if you're across the very least in this club channel, then at some point, I can't remember the years now in my head, like, but you're over retail sales as a whole. Did the retail sales include D2C or marketplaces or other things, or was it truly just kind of brick and mortar stuff? It was, we did take an omni-channel approach to launching. Really, when we took off outside of club, outside of the wholesale space was around 2014, 2015, right at the same time that we launched our international products. D2C has always been owned by our marketing team on our side. They do a fantastic yeah. job when it comes to PDPs. Like they're the voice, they're the message. It makes sense for them to own that particular space there. But we've got our sales team that currently manage all of our marketplace sites, as well as our big box retailers. For us, Point of sale is important. It's a form of distribution to have your product sitting on a shelf. And that is important. Online is where 60% of purchases are happening. They start online. People are doing research, checking reviews, product content. And so it's critical. E-commerce has changed a lot, in my opinion, over the last six, seven years. I think everyone will say that. But it's been a bigger focus year after year after year, especially for the last seven years is the way things have changed. So one of the challenges is I talk to sales leaders a lot around the e-commerce angle is that it has a high potential to be disruptive in many different ways to the retail or traditional brick and mortar, which honestly is often carrying 80, 90% of the revenue. And so what kind of protocols or strategies did you guys put in place to maintain control of your brand, of pricing, of distribution to make sure e-commerce, even though I'm sure it's growing fast, did not become like a cancer growing fast. It actually became like a true boon from a stability, profitability, branding kind of piece. How did you guys think through that? 
it was difficult. And we adapted kind of year after year. We had to anyways. In 2014, we really took a shotgun approach to our retail distribution. It was kind of this approach, you know, anyone and anyone who's willing to sell Blendtec, we want to get out there everywhere. About a year into that, we realized that's probably not the best approach when you're selling a premium product, right? The price disruption, the price comparing guy. <laughs> it can ruin a brand. Whether you're a premium brand or not, if you can't control your pricing online, inline, that omni-channel approach, you'll kill a brand very, very quickly. So we've definitely adjusted, I think, year after year as marketplaces have become more prevalent, more online sellers, more concerns about counterfeit goods, other things. It's something we definitely have had to adjust. Right now, we currently, it's very selective distribution. We work with some of the best retailers out there, online and inline business anyways. And that's our focus. We're not trying to sell to everyone, every retailer out there. It's work with the individuals who we know they're going to control price. We're going to have quality content sitting on their website. Anyone could put a picture of a Blendtec sitting on an e-commerce site. Unless you're selling a five, $600, $800 blender, unless you've got good content, product-rich content behind it, great lifestyle images, like it's difficult to move that product. Is a reason, one of the reasons we've got very selective distribution there. Well, I love it. I think a lot of sales leaders can learn from that as well. It's certainly something we preach is, and it's hard, right? Because what gets you success in the brick and mortar space, number of doors, the breadth of the distribution, all those things that really lends to your success can be somewhat catastrophic in the new age of a lot of e-commerce to your point, because there's arbitrage selling, there's people taking stuff off the back of trucks, there's marketplaces, which introduce a whole new dynamic. So maybe we just touch on that for a second. I've got some other questions after this, but what does the Amazon strategy look like? What does it look like today? How have you thought through as time's gone by? And I'm sure you have other distributors trying to sell their stuff on Amazon, but how have you kind of thought through the Amazon you know, challenge, I guess, or opportunity? Yeah, it's changed a lot. Just like our retail distribution strategies have changed, our e-commerce, our marketplace, Amazon strategies have changed kind of year over year. So what we currently have right now is actually much different than we were looking a year ago. We just launched with Pattern to Handle Exclusive, our 3P selling on Amazon for our retail products as well as Walmart. And there's a big reason we did that. Strategically, it was about four years ago, we consolidated our core group of approved 3P sellers to around six or seven authorized sellers. Had a great relationship with them. It's difficult to manage that piece. You know, it's one thing they'll sell under their name, but it's very easy for them to open up another shop and sell under three, four, five, six different names. And with commingled stock that you're finding in these marketplaces, you can't just buy a product, track the serial number, and identify who the individual is. If people are smart in this game. And so Kind of watching that was the catalyst to reach out to Pattern. It was about a year ago when we started first conversations there. Is we just we needed a control price, we needed control content, and avoid a lot of these unauthorized sellers that were wreaking havoc both online and offline in our space. And yeah, so far very excited about what the potential is in store for us. And this is our strategy. We have no plans of changing this strategy for in the foreseeable future. It was. It was about three years ago, I ended up speaking with another manufacturer that they made this same approach. Yeah. As I was talking to their CEO, I'm like, is that the best decision? One seller to rule them all? <laughs> Man, it's so nice to be able to call on six or seven authorized sellers for POs as needed throughout the time. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's more important to control price because that's what's going to kill the marketplace more than anything else. 
Yeah. Well, and you have to protect all those really important distribution points and brick and mortar. Otherwise, you can just start to erode the price there. And then you're into price matching and then you're losing shelf space. And this is, we call that the profitability death spiral, but it's no joke. Yeah. It's a very slippery slope and it can be catastrophic. So, you know, kudos to you guys for making the hard decision. And, you know, I hope it keeps playing out in your favor. One of the random questions I kind of had is that, you know, because you mentioned earlier, so much of your manufacturing takes place here in the US, I would assume that creates an opportunity to do a better job with things like returns and obviously repairs or other warranty type of issues. I'm sure they're, you guys probably have a pretty robust, if I would think about it, like a refurbished business, right? Tell us a little bit about that. How do you guys handle that? Obviously, going more into D2C and maybe even marketplaces as well, that creates this opportunity to have more control of the supply chain and not just have to like throw stuff away. And at your ASP, that becomes probably pretty crucial to recoup. Tell us a little bit about that process and how it's worked out for you guys. Absolutely. You know, it's something we've definitely always taken pride in and manufacturing as much as we can out of our facility here in Utah. With COVID starting in early 2020 anyways, it's been a huge benefit to us. Everyone knows with the global supply chain issues that everyone's having from grocery stores to appliances to buying vehicles, it's killer. But the ability for us to manufacture and not be reliant on someone else to get that product to assemble here in our facility in Utah has allowed us to fill product where our competitors can't. We saw an increase of over 100% market share in our commercial business last year, which is crazy. Demand for our products. We make a premium product. We sell it for two, three times more than the competition does, but we back it better than our customers do. Our warranty is better than our competitors have on their side. But manufacturing has really helped us. I would say that was a big catalyst for that big increase in market share is just ultimately we could fulfill product where our competitors couldn't. Yeah. What an amazing... You know, one of my questions really is around what trends have you capitalized on? What opportunities have worked out in your favor? And I would say that's got to be at the top of the list, right? The ability to maintain that control over your supply chain, capitalize on the mistakes or the challenges of other competitors. And certainly, honestly, just the boom, probably, I would guess the blender sales probably went up as people are just stuck at home and looking for something different to do or looking for something more convenient. Maybe they start firing up the the blender in the middle of the summer. So that's great. What other trends are kind of out there, I guess, as you look even forward to the next couple of years, you guys have had everything from ownership changes to this global pandemic to a bunch of stuff kind of staring you down. What does the future look like? What's kind of top of mind for you? Where are you guys investing or retrenching or whatever? Help us understand where innovation is going to come on the next corner for Blendtec. Innovation is still going to be at the forefront of our minds anyways. On the commercial side of our business, you know, especially with COVID and the impact that it had on so many of the restaurants out there, most of the owners are kind of reaching out right now and saying, how do we do more with less? You know, it's difficult to get employees to come in the door and actually make our drinks and sell our food and other items. Can you make me a machine that can blend twice as fast as everyone else? Can you make me a machine that requires less labor to facilitate? Can you make me a machine? A big focus right now is environmental impact for most companies. Something as simple as the amount of water that it takes to wash a jar, a blender, you wouldn't think it's much. If you're blending 300, 400 drinks on a daily basis, it's significant. It equates to millions of gallons if you've got multiple locations on a yearly basis. 
And so Blendtec innovation on the commercial space, that's at the forefront. We're going to continue to push the envelope. We've come out with some awesome products just in the last two years that have really allowed us to kind of take that next step. One of them happens to be jarless blending, where everyone blends in the jar. We do it at home, right? One of the concerns that we see from or heard from our customers over the last three, four years, the amount of waste that happens when an operator maybe get a little lazy, just not paying attention. They overfill, they blend it. There's three, four ounces of liquid left over that goes down the drain. It impacts the environment. It's wasteful, adds up, it costs the company money. So our engineers did an awesome job. They innovated a way that you can blend in the cup that you're going to serve direct to the customer. So you go into a smoothie shop. We actually have the ability to take that cup that you're going to drink your smoothie out of, throw the ingredients in, blend, protect the cup, right straight in that same cup and hand it direct to the customer. Less contact, it's cleaner, it's more sanitary, it's better. That along with, we had some new brushless implementation, new products that we developed on the commercial space that our brushless blenders are lasting three to four times longer than the competition. And, you know, you brought it up right at the beginning of this podcast. One of the downsides to a blend tech, or at least being a sales guy for a blend tech, is our machines last a really long time. I would love to be able to sell someone a blender every three to five years. But the premium that we do ask, the one key trend that we've really watched over the years is our customers are not concerned about paying a premium for a product if they get better innovation and better quality. So that's why we'll continue to push the envelope and find the right innovation that saves time, saves money, more cost-effective to really be able to deliver to the needs of our customers. That's on the commercial side. We have a retail arm that we're really excited about. We have a long history there since we'll blend of selling our retail products. Innovation is going to come there. It's something that I can't tell you what we're doing, but I can tell you that over the last 12 years I've been with this company, I haven't been more excited ever than I am today about what we're going to be coming out with in 2022. Yeah, that's just amazing. And that gets me excited as well. So that's really great. Well, I'm tempted to just wrap it up here because that's a great high note to kind of end on. The last kind of frontier that we didn't cover in a lot of depth where there are a lot of crazy things happening and complexities and opportunity, et cetera, really is just international. And I would say this both on the e-commerce side as well as brick and mortar and distribution. And I think about everything from counterfeits to that supply chain piece to gray market selling to you know, price and distribution control challenges to just the actually the upside of the opportunity and the growth and some of the trends that have happened here that are likely to kind of carry on over there. So anything that comes to mind around the international space that is worth kind of covering here as it relates to the growth of the company, as it relates to e-commerce, or as it relates to big trends happening? Yeah, I think there's really two approaches that most manufacturers, like Blendtec anyways, will take the approach. It's either do you want to handle the distribution direct when you're launching overseas, or do you want to go through a distribution model and export model on that side? In Blendtec, we have, it's a handful, probably five or six customers, retailers outside of the US we sell direct to. For the most part, we've taken the approach as let's find a trusted individual in the country, a trusted distributor that already has well-established relationships with those distributors. And let's lean on that distributor, grow our business, uh, really establish. For us, we're not looking at it as a one, two, three-year partnership with these distributors to get it off the ground. Really, we're looking at long-term strategic relationships there. One of the main advantages, there's so many advantages, but even the legality, some of the map, it works in the U.S., 
It doesn't work anywhere else really, right? And having individuals who really understand and who come on or sell other products, it's we sell a great product, but it's still relationship-based with a lot of buyers for the most part. You need to be able to have an established relationship with a buyer and be able to convince them that this is the right product that they can enter. Wow. And so we've got some amazing distributors, trusted partners that we've got that are helping us grow our international business. That's so great. I'm really excited for the pipeline. I'm excited about the partnership. I'm excited for international and really appreciate you hopping on and telling us a little bit of the backstory and the forward story and everywhere else. So Chris, thank you so much for joining today. It was a pleasure to get to know you better and to hear so many great things and congratulations on all the product innovation and success you guys have had. And uh, hopefully get you back on the show here in another year and hear about all the great stuff you guys have done. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks, John. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye.